and welcome to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast with me, Dr. Kat Arney. In this episode, we're getting our hands dirty by delving into the poopome, the trillions of bacteria that live inside our guts and make up what's known as the microbiome. Rather than simply being a bunch of bugs, the microbiome is now believed to play a role in virtually every aspect of health and disease. But what are they up to? How do we even know what species are in there? And can you blame your stinky farts on your bacteria? The microbiome is one of the hottest topics in scientific research right now. Our gut bacteria have been linked with everything from weight and mood to immune function and even response to cancer treatment. Microbes populate our gut on the day that we're born, but exactly which ones we have depends on where we pick them up from. Mum, the world around us and the foods we eat. But why is the microbiome so influential if it's just bugs? That's the question I put to Tim Spector, Professor of Genetic Epidemiology at King's College London, author of The Diet Myth and scientific co-founder of the precision nutrition company Zoe, whose PREDICT research study is investigating how the microbiome and other factors affect personal responses to food. It's just bugs, but it's probably the most exciting discovery of the last decade because we have these hundreds of trillions of microbes inside us. Most of them are in our large intestine and collectively they form what is a virtual organ because they all work together and they are essentially chemical factories that produce thousand times more molecules than our own body can produce and they have several hundred times more genes in them to help make those chemicals. And it turns out these chemicals are incredibly important for keeping us healthy and on a stable footing in terms of our immune system and our mood and our appetite and our metabolism. And we're just scratching the surface of all the things that these amazing chemicals produced by these bugs can actually do. Because I'm used to the idea, yeah, for something like cows, or I can accept that for humans as well, there's going to be things in our diet that our bodies, the enzymes in our stomach and our intestines can't break down. So maybe we need bacteria to help with that. So you're saying that there's this whole other layer of molecules produced by these bacteria that could be really important, probably are important, and we don't really know. Yes, so digesting food is one part of, which is the very simple part of what these these bugs do. They can break down these complex carbohydrates that we otherwise can't do with the the analogy about uh, cows and other ruminants. But once they've got this food inside them, they then convert that food into a whole range of other chemicals that they either use themselves or they pass on to the body or they allow us to then use in return in a very sort of symbiotic relationship. And some of these are absolutely key to our well-being. Some of them are substances related to serotonin that's a major brain neurochemical that makes the difference between us being happy or sad. Others are key components that keep our immune system healthy and stop us overreacting and getting autoimmune diseases or allergies. And so we're just scratching the surface of these thousands of chemicals that we know very little about, trying to work out everything they do. But what's clear is that we can't afford to ignore them because in medicine, over half the drugs tested so far have a major interaction with these microbes, which explains why 
the same tablet isn't going to work for two people. People will need different doses because depending on the state of your gut health, you're going to metabolize or break down that chemical very differently and it's going to have a very different effect. And as with medicines, the same is also true of uh, all our common foods. So it's requiring us to take a totally new look at everything that we put into our bodies because uh, the way that that's converted into other chemicals is proving to be highly complex, highly exciting and highly individual. So let's dig into this a bit more. Tell me about some of the research that you've been doing to try and find out what is different in the microbes between people and, and the effects that it has on health. What we did starting about seven years ago was to look within our twin cohort, Twins UK, which is the largest database of twins in this country, about 13,000 of them. And we'd looked at two or 3,000 twins who are both identical and non-identical. And for most of the traits we've looked at, we generally see a much stronger similarity between identical twins compared to non-identical twins, which tells you that genes play an important role. And this is nearly every sort of thing that we've looked at, whether it's fasting hormone levels or whether it's body size or whether it's intelligence or personality or major diseases. That's good. This is a genetics podcast. Good to know genes are important for something. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I'm a... You know, I'm essentially a geneticist, so for 25 years I've been using the twin model to show sceptical people that actually it's not just wear and tear and that things like back pain and arthritis and depression have a, a strong genetic basis. So I was well poised really to look at this question and, and to really say, well, how do the microbes fit into this vision really of, of most things being highly genetic? And when we did this with the group at Cornell we got some surprising answers because overall there's only a very weak genetic component to the microbiome. Most of it seems to be very individual, most of it is driven by the, the environment and our diet and it's hard to predict. There were some exceptions and there are some microbes that seem to particularly fit with certain people's genes and these, some of them we'd explored in great detail, things like Christensenella which is a microbe that if you have it, it protects you against getting overweight. And that seems to have genetic basis, as did a few anti-inflammatory ones. But in general, it was only very weak. And we followed this study up recently with the PREDICT study, which is the largest nutritional intervention study so far performed, where we took a thousand mainly twins and gave them standardized meals and looked at their food responses and looked at the effect of the microbiome. And when you looked at the metagenomes, we saw only a slight difference between the identical twins and the, and the non-identical twins and unrelated people. So there was only a really tiny overall element of genetics making this up, which meant that most identical twins had really very different microbiomes. And we believe this explains why even identical twins respond very differently to identical foods. Obviously, identical twins and non-identical twins are born at the same time. One assumes mostly through the same route, uh, whether that's a caesarean section or a vaginal birth. Does that seem to have an impact on their microbiome? Because you might think if they've come out the same way, they might get the same bacteria from mum. So it's strange that they're not more similar. Yes, I think we were all surprised that even non-identical twins weren't much more similar than unrelateds. 
I guess it, it just shows that there's a huge luck element to what microbes you end up with. Obviously, caesarean section is important, and we know that microbes for the first period of life are different, but it's hard to tell differences after the age of about five. And so you have possibly these rather random changes in many kids early in life that uh, can have effects, and effects of medication, antibiotics, etc. So there seems to be a rather random element to people's early lives that we haven't really been able to explain yet. And also flexibility in the early life that you can quite rapidly change your microbiome from unhealthy to healthy or, or vice versa. Uh, and so, again, the microbiome continues to surprise us in ways we hadn't expected. And for someone like me as an adult thinking about the microbes in my tummy, what should I do to look after them, to improve them? What should I be looking for? Well, so far, the one thing we do know is that the more diverse the number of species in your gut, the healthier you're going to be. And this seems to be true for a whole range of diseases and disorders that we've looked at so far. So that's the number one thing that everyone should try and do. And it's a way the analogy is having a, a rich country garden full of different plants and herbs uh, and flowers in there. With If you've got that huge range, the soil is healthy. It means that they're producing all kinds of chemicals that help each other and it stops other weeds coming in, other nasty diseases. So how do you do that? We did a large study comparing British guts and American guts of over 11,000 people, and the one factor that increased the diversity of your gut microbes was the number of different plants you ate in a week. And most of the food we eat are plants. We often don't realise it when it's in a packet, but it's the variety. So if you can get to 30 is the ideal number of different plants in a week, you're going to have the maximum diversity of your gut microbes. So it's not having the same kale smoothie every day. It's having a whole range of nuts and seeds and herbs and spices and different vegetables and fruits. And if you can mix it up like that, that's how you get the greatest chance of getting a really diverse microbiome. Now, on top of that, you can help, we think, with fermented foods and obviously people know about yogurt and cheese, but the new ones, kefirs and kombuchas and kimchi, are great as well as giving you extra probiotics and prebiotics combined. And then you've got looking for foods in your range of vegetables and fruits that are high in these particular chemicals that we now know are important called polyphenols. Those are the colourful chemicals, aren't they? They're generally very brightly coloured, the purples, the reds, and make fruit and veg particularly attractive. So the stronger the colours in general, you get the more polyphenols. And so there's nine times more polyphenols, for example, in Persian purple carrots than there are in the uh, orange type. And so if you have these polyphenols, they're no good for you, but they are really like rocket fuel for your gut microbes. And so energise them, and then they can then make these amazing chemicals that get your immune system on track. I'm going to go to the salad bar this lunch, I think. Yes, and don't forget, that, you know, as well as healthy salads, dark chocolate is also full of polyphenols. Yes, 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 yes. As long as it's over about <laughs> 70% and free of other sweetness and things, that's good. Olive oil, extra virgin olive oil, packed with um, polyphenols. Coffee, red wine, 
cider. Oh, this is, this is what I want to hear. This is the diet advice I need. Yeah, so I think as long as you, you know, don't overdo any one thing and you keep <laughs> and you have a diverse range of these foods, everything in context, you can find a whole range of foods that are healthy for you without really sort of having too Spartan a life. Dark chocolate, red wine and coffee, that is pretty much my perfect diet. Thank you very much to Tim Spector for making me feel a bit better about my Cote de Rhone habit. This is Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Genetics Unzip and online at geneticsunzipped.com. Please, 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 please do take a minute to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really does make a difference when it comes to helping more people discover the show and spreading the word about the wonderful world of genetics. The kind of analysis that Tim and his team are doing to study the microbiome in twins involves collecting a stool sample you got to scoop that poop, extracting all the DNA from it and running it through a DNA sequencer, then sifting through all that data using clever bioinformatics to try and figure out what bacterial species were in there in the first place. This approach is known as metagenomics, and researchers are now using it to study bacterial communities in all sorts of places, from every nook and cranny of the body to food and drink, or the soil and the sea. Deconvoluting all this genetic data isn't an easy task, as I discovered when I spoke to Rob Finn, a team leader at the European Bioinformatics Institute just outside Cambridge. So when I first started out in the, in the sort of field of molecular biology and bioinformatics, the traditional way was you used to have go and find one of these microbes, one of these things, and then you had to grow it in the lab. But these things, these bacteria, for example, are quite fastidious. They like to eat certain things. And to get that all working in the lab, it can be quite hard. Sometimes they need their their friends to come along with them that also help them to grow. So it can be quite difficult. So it's estimated that we've only actually isolated about 1% of all organisms, which means there's 99% out there still to discover. So over the last few years, with sequencing getting much cheaper, what we've been able to do is actually go sample directly. And so therefore, you might have a whole collection of different microbes from viruses, bacteria, and sort of small fungi, for example. And then with sequencing getting cheaper, you just sequence all of the DNA you can collect. So then the, then the problem is, is I've got all of these fragments. How do I get to a genome? So people have likened this to a catastrophe in a jigsaw puzzle shop where someone's just pulled all the pieces off the shelf, mixed them all up, taken some of those pieces away and the pictures. And then what we have to use are computational algorithms to try and guess which pieces should go back together again. So you might start off with, going back to the analogy of the jigsaw puzzles, you might start off with blue as being the sky. So you use some sort of knowledge about what we've seen before. So we've been doing this more and more and the algorithms have got better and better. And so now it is possible to just about get draft genomes or a good idea of these genomes back out from these. There are certain limitations in the fact that we only can recover the most common things. So it's the bacteria typically that are more common in a sample, not the very few. And what sort of samples are we talking about? Where could you just grab a whole bunch of bacteria and throw them through your machines? So... Microbes are very good at finding all different places to live. There's not very many environments where you don't find microbes. So in theory, any sample. So traditionally, I mean, the common areas that people have had interest is the human gut, 
ocean samples and soil. And so that's really where the field of metagenomics started, but it's broadened out. People like to understand metagenomes of cheese and wine, for example, now. Mm -hmm. I can see yeah. that, yeah. Yeah, it's very important that we understand that. But there are other things where people go into, say, compost heaps and try and find microbes or enzymes that could be important for generating biofuels. So it's, it's really gone from those sort of three major biomes to lots and lots of different environments. So... I mean, it ultimately comes down to, can you get enough sample of the microbes to then extract the DNA? The one I've always wanted to do is to go around a whole load of like music venues and rehearsal studios and do the microphones, because I bet there's some weird bugs in there. Yeah, there will be all sorts. I mean, it's, uh, yeah, whether they're growing and able to sustain, but I'm sure there's all sorts of horrible things. And people have done built up environments and Let's just say microbes are all around us all of the time. And when it comes to taking this sample, you know, take a cup full of water out of the mm -hmm. ocean, extract all the DNA from it, put it through a DNA sequencer and you get all these fragments, you know, ACs, Ts and Gs, these little strings. How do you then go about putting that puzzle together? What's, can you explain some of the ways that you would start analysing it? So... The way that we go through these sorts of uh, puzzle problems is there is just some of it is just brute force. And essentially what you're looking for are little pieces that overlap. So you, we've got lots and lots of fragments and then we start looking for pieces where maybe a part of, of the string is in common. And then you can start building it up and you want a certain amount of depth of that. So there's usually when you pile all of those little fragments up, we're typically looking at sort of, you know, about five times or more coverage before we can actually start piecing these together and reliably say, yes, we think this is a piece of DNA from a particular genome. So to go back to your jigsaw analogy, it would be like, OK, we definitely want to find the same piece from five copies of this jigsaw before we know that that's probably a real piece. Yes, essentially. That's what we want to do. And, and what we've done in my research team is we've looked across many, many different samples and you get more confidence when if you treat each sample independently, then you recover the same genome over and over again, which is always quite reassuring that actually these algorithms are not just producing something arbitrary. And in terms of the number of species that you might find, say, you know, there's a cup of water on the desk here, you know, standard like 200 mils of water. What number of species of bacteria and viruses might we find in there if that was a cup of seawater or even maybe, you know, Cambridgeshire tap water? Oh, yeah. I mean, so all of the biomes have a different level of complexity in terms of the different numbers of, of microbes. And even within an ocean environment, it varies. So for an ocean sample, we sort of roughly say it's sort of, you know, it's in the thousands range. So it's like 1,000 to 10,000, but that varies depending on how far you are from the coast and the depth that you are at sea. And what about in a soil? Say that was a cup full of soil. How yeah. many different species would we find? Well, in a soil, it's even harder. So the easiest microbiomes typically to work on is human gut. So there's about 400 species typically in a human gut sample, and we can recover those fairly easily. Then there's water is the next step up, it's, so it's an order of magnitude. And then soil is even worse in terms of it's another order of magnitude. So you're talking tens of thousands. And our ability to recover genomes, we can do that in the gut. We can just about do it in the marine samples. Soil is still one of those areas where we need improvements of techniques to really access those microbes reliably. 
And actually thinking about that, you know, our gut isn't the only place on the body where bacteria live. I'm thinking about, you know, your armpits, your your bladder, your lungs. What do we know about those kinds of populations? And can we take the same approach there? So, yes, the same approach can be applied there. So I've also worked on a human scalp. It's actually a more simple microbiome, but bacteria everywhere. The bacteria you find, say, in your scalp or in your armpit or in the vagina, they're all very different. So there are different communities living on us in different areas. And, and that's sort of understandable. So your gut doesn't have a lot of oxygen in it, whereas in your head, it's exposed to oxygen all the time. So the, the bacteria are adapted to that different environment. And is there anything that you found that has been just very strange, you know, or a bacteria turning up where you're like, what are you doing there? Oh, that's a good question. I wouldn't say that there's so much of that. I think one of the things that we're always amazed about is we see logical links. So when we did this big survey of gut microbes, we found some cases where there are things that are commonly found in the mouth. But that's not really that surprising, the fact your oral microbiome is linked to your gut. Yeah. Um, so it's not really Seems that legit. Surprising. It checks out. Yeah, yeah, it checks out. And so... But because we're in this voyage of discovery, a lot of the bacteria we recover, we've just never seen before. So to know it's anomaly is actually quite hard to say. It could be perfectly common. It's just we've never knew it was there. Correct. I mean, that's the sort of thing that we're, we're thinking about. So uh, finally, you know, what's the, the point of doing this? Once we know that all these different populations of bacteria are here or there or in the sea or in the soil or in our guts, what can we do with that information? OK, so I'll go for the immediate that's happening now to the longer term aspiration. So we're already seeing people starting to mine these metagenomics data sets for novel enzymes, for example. So there are lots and lots of applications. So you can just think about some simple cases. So if you're after a, an enzyme that works at low temperature, say for washing powder, if you go to an environment that's at low temperature, you've got a good chance of finding an enzyme that works at low temperature. It's fairly logical. And we're beginning to see the metagenomics data sets being tapped in for novel sort of enzymes and biotech discovery. So that's where we are now. The next stage is starting to understand how we can gather more interesting things like novel antibiotics. That usually involves many different enzymes and little cassettes. But if we can start discovering that or understand antibiotic resistance mechanisms, that's interesting. So that's still on a sort of, you know, from a single enzyme to sort of a single genome. But the, the longer term aspiration is can we understand a microbiome sufficiently enough that if it's in a disease state or if there's an environmental impact, whether that's climate change or an oil spill, can we understand how to reverse the impact of that and bring it back to a so-called normal state? This may be a bit of a strange question, but do you have a favourite bacteria? Um, I, I wouldn't say I want to be too prejudiced about my uh, favourite bacteria. I, I like them all. I want to understand them all. But there are certain groups that metagenomics is really giving us access to. So there's a group called the candidate phyla radiation. And they are quite new to us in, in, in the scientific world. And there's lots and lots of examples that have come from the metagenomics world that we've never seen them before. And they have some really interesting biology in the fact that they've lost a lot of the things that you would consider normal. So some of them have lost complete 
amino acid biosynthesis pathway. So they can't make their own proteins themselves in isolation. And so some of them are what they call epibionts. So they live on a yeast and then they seem to just absorb the amino acids that are just given off by that yeast and so can then thrive. And so understanding how those two organisms have co-evolved is very interesting. Rob Finn from the European Bioinformatics Institute, giving us a glimpse into the mysterious microbial world. Once researchers have identified interesting species of bacteria with peculiar biological properties, the next step is to try and grow them in the lab to take a closer look. But growing gut bugs is a lot harder than you might expect, according to Hilary Brown, a researcher at the Wellcome Sanger Institute in Cambridge. So it's quite easy to get a hold of these samples. We're quite lucky in that way. What's challenging, though, is that your gut is anaerobic. So this means there is very little to no oxygen in there. And so the majority of the bacteria in this environment cannot survive in the presence of oxygen. So some of them will die within seconds of being exposed to oxygen. So this is the challenging part of our work. So we have to work with these samples in in anaerobic conditions. So we have these special hoods where we can stick our arms in and the inside of them is completely anaerobic. It's pumped with anaerobic gas. And this is how we work with these bacteria. It seems like just uh, the weirdest job in the world. You're getting samples of poo from people. You're trying to work with them in an environment with no oxygen at all. And then what are you doing with them? Because presumably there's a lot of different bacteria in there. Yeah, so what we've been trying to do is to try and grow as many of them as possible. And and this is really basic microbiology. So if if you can grow the bacteria, then you can study them in the lab and you can learn more about their biology. And so the field of microbiome research, it's exploded in the past few years because of sequencing technology, DNA sequencing technologies. And this is because sequencing has become much cheaper and we've also become much better at it. And so by doing this approach, you get an idea of who is there in the community. But if you can culture the bacteria and if you can work with them in the lab, then you can actually understand what are they doing. And, I mean, it seems a bit strange to me as someone who's worked in a lab, you know, you get some bacteria, E. coli is the most common one, that's originally a gut bacteria. You stick them in some broth or you smear them on a plate and bugs just grow. Why is it so hard for these gut bacteria to grow? What makes it so challenging to try and grow them in the lab? You don't just like smear some poo on a plate and hope for the best. Well, so actually E. coli is not very common in the gut at all. It is there, but it's at very low numbers. And so E. coli can also grow in the presence of oxygen. So again, this makes it very easy to work with. The reason the majority of the gut bacteria are different from E. coli is that some of them have very strict nutritional requirements. So some of the carbon sources that are in media that we commonly use, these gut bacteria do not like them. So that's why we've had to use different media and different culturing techniques to try and isolate them. So take me through the process of you get a sample of poop from someone. First of all, who who from? You know, is it you? Is it your lab mates? Where, Where do you get poop from? So we would have studies with collaborators in hospitals. So, for example, we have a study looking at patients with IBS. And in these scenarios, the patients would produce the samples, uh, stick it in their freezer, and then we send a a courier around to pick up the samples on dry ice. Oh, wow. And so the reason we do this is because... We want to keep the bacteria alive and to get them here as soon as possible. And a good way to do that is to freeze them. 
So if the patient freezes them in their freezer and then the courier brings them here on dry ice, then we can stick them into the freezer here and this preserves the bacteria. It's like, woohoo, Christmas! Oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And obviously uh, the patient has to be very careful when they go reaching for stuff in the freezer as well. Oh my God. Yeah, I can imagine that. So what's the next step of it, trying to get these bacteria out of this sample? So you've, you've got the poop and you've got your uh, wonderful hood with no oxygen in it. What happens next? So first we have our frozen poo and then we defrost it in the cabinet. And then what we do is we dilute it maybe a million times. So if you just plated a piece of poo on an agar plate that had nutrients for bacteria, you'd be amazed at the amount of growth that would be there. And it really gives you an indication of how much bacteria there are in your gut. So what we have to do is we have to dilute that fecal sample down thousands of times until we can see distinct bacterial colonies. And so when these are growing on the plate, then, then we can pick them. And then what we do is we sequence a part of their genome to identify them, so to give them a name. And then we would freeze that particular isolate in, in a freezer at minus 80. And so now we have a, a frozen isolate in the freezer that we can do experiments with in the lab. And we would also sequence its genome. And this is very informative as well. So tell me about some of the bacteria that you found. Have there been any ones that have been completely new, surprising? Any like, whoa, what are you doing in there? Well, we were amazed at the amount of novel bacteria that we actually recovered. So the more culturing we do, the more novel bacteria we find. And so we're not just finding novel strains or novel species, we're finding bacteria from novel families as well. So this is kind of a, a higher taxonomic level. So there's a huge amount of diversity in the gut and we're still really scratching at the surface in, in terms of capturing the diversity of it all. So it's, it's hard to pinpoint one specific example really because there's so much there we still have to discover. And presumably there are still, you know, in your gut, in my gut, bacteria that are currently unknown to science. Yes, loads, yes. And if you consider us here in the Western world eating a particular diet, we will have a particular type of microbiome. And this is where much of the research is focused to date in Europe and the US. But if you looked in different populations, then you're going to find a completely different set of bacteria as well that haven't been discovered. Who knows what else might be out there? Hilary Brown from the Wellcome Sanger Institute. And of course... I couldn't make a programme about gut bacteria without tackling the one question that my inner 10-year-old has been dying to ask. What's the connection between the microbiome and farts? Tim Spector was good enough to humour me with an answer. Very good question, and we don't really know, is the answer. There's very little research goes on about farts. We do know that the average person does about 14 farts a day. Uh, some admit it and some are proud of it and others uh, are not so it, it is quite normal to expel wind and some foods when people are changing onto certain foods or changing fiber from a, a junk food diet to a healthy diet they might experience more wind as their guts are fermenting some of these products and some people do have some medical problems with this and can end up with irritable bowel type symptoms from over fermenting it could be due to the length of the bowel, which differs about threefold between people. Uh, it could be due to the speed of eating. And it could be just due to certain resident microbes that produce their own methane and uh, live off methane. You've got the farty bugs, basically. Uh, yes. So next time you have an embarrassing moment, rather than just saying sorry, say, uh, please excuse my microbes. Great. Blame the microbes. It's like blaming the dog, isn't it? Yes, they're there for all purposes to say they're great and to also 
blame all our troubles on. But the nice thing is, you know, we can, we can change them. And next time you eat anything, realise that with 100 trillion microbes inside you, you're never going to eat alone again. Not so much feeding the 5,000 as feeding the 5 trillion. That's Tim Spector from King's College London. And finally, a couple of episodes ago, we looked at the evolutionary origins of sex. But what about the evolution of asexual reproduction? While doing it yourself is common in invertebrate species, there's around 90 species of vertebrate that have evolved to reproduce asexually, including derefskir lizards, where mums make babies without any input from males. In this clip from the latest podcast from Heredity, the Genetic Society's journal, James Bergen talks to Susanna Freitas from the University of Lausanne in Switzerland about the origins of these unusual animals. So yeah, maybe you could just tell us a bit about this group of lizards and why they were interesting for your study. So historically, they're actually important because they were the first to be found asexual vertebrates. So in the 60s, there was some researchers that were studying these populations of these lizards. And in a specific population, they only found females. And every time they went back there, they they only found females and never found males. It was the first observation of vertebrate asexuality. I mean, it's an amazing group. There's, Like I told you in the beginning, there's like 90 species in total of uh, vertebrate asexuals. But in this group alone, there's seven. Wow. You can hear the full interview in the latest Heredity podcast. Just search for Heredity in your favourite podcast app or follow the link from the page for this podcast at geneticsunzipped.com. That's all for now. For more information about this podcast, including show notes, transcripts, links, references and everything else, head over to geneticsunzipped.com. You can find us on Twitter, at Genetics Unzip, and please do take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really does make a difference, so thank you. Genetics Unzipped is presented by me, Katani, and is produced by First Create the Media for the Genetics Society, one of the oldest learned societies in the world dedicated to supporting and promoting the research, teaching and application of genetics. You can find out more and apply to join at genetics.org.uk. Our theme music was composed by Dan Pollard. The logo was designed by James Mayle. Transcription is by Viv Andrews and production is by Hannah Varrell. Thanks for listening and until next time, goodbye.